Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present. In this episode, we'll be examining how the coronavirus pandemic could accelerate the development and adoption of new technologies. Coming out of this, you could certainly see something like short-haul flights could be disrupted by this because I, as a consumer, no longer want to take that mass transportation option. There's a steady accumulation of experimentation and technology that then be brought into the economy in these urgent periods. The COVID-19 crisis is changing how people use technology. But which of those changes will stick? And which technologies stand to benefit as they become more widely used? Before we look forward, though, I want to take you all the way back to 1815. In April that year, Mount Tambora, a volcano in what is now Indonesia, exploded in one of the largest eruptions in recorded history. A vast plume of dust and ash spread around the world, blocking out the sun and reducing global temperatures, and causing what came to be known as the year without summer. Crops failed in China, the summer monsoon was delayed in India, and in North America a dry fog reddened the sun. It even snowed in the summer in New York. In Europe, riots and looting broke out as the wheat, oat and potato harvests failed. Food prices soared and tens of thousands of people died from famine and disease. Thousands of horses also starved or were slaughtered as the high price of oats forced people to choose whether to feed their horses or themselves. All of which prompted Karl von Dreis, a German inventor, to devise a personal transport machine to replace the horse, a two-wheeled wooden contraption called the Laufmaschine, which literally means running machine. But over the years that followed, his invention was steadily refined, and today we call it the bicycle. All of which shows that crisis can be the mother of invention in some unexpected ways. So what might emerge from the coronavirus crisis, and which technologies stand to benefit? Here to help answer this question is Ludwig Siegler, The Economist's US technology editor based in San Francisco. Hello Ludwig. Hi Tom. And in New York, Tasha Keeney, an analyst at ARK Invest who specialises in emerging technologies. Hello, Tasha. Hey, thanks for having me. Ludwig, if I could start with you, what technologies do you see as benefiting from the current situation? So the way I see this is that the coronavirus has forced us to do is kind of retreat into the cloud. And so anything that kind of helps us to do that will benefit, at least in the medium term. And so, of course, that's online shopping, that is video conferencing services like Zoom, that is maybe MOOCs, kind of online education. It's, of course, also delivery services and all things. So or anything that helps us live in the cloud, live in lockdown will benefit. And kind of a second group of companies is infrastructure. So all the providers of infrastructures, content delivery networks, cloud computing providers, they are having a pretty good time and that will continue. So in a way, I think to see this is that the COVID crisis has accelerated trends that were already in place. And Tasha, your firm's identified some of the technologies whose adoption is being accelerated by the crisis. So what are some examples? Yes. So in my space... In the 3D printing and autonomous technology realm, for 3D printing, we see 
companies using the technology in the short term for replacement parts. This comes into play, particularly in healthcare settings. For example, we've seen some hospitals in Italy use 3D printing to create ventilator parts that they would have otherwise had to rely on a traditional manufacturer to make. You can make them much faster with 3D printing. It's really great for replacement parts because these are low volume. And then on the autonomous technology side, we see things like drones and autonomous robots being used for contactless delivery. Really anything where a human would have otherwise had to to make contact. We now see a, a little bit more adoption and testing of that technology than you otherwise would have. It's to me, it's not quite clear, for example, to what extent drones will actually benefit or 3D. I mean, one could assume that that's the case. But for example, in terms of manufacturing, Tasha, don't you think that in the end, when things are back to normal, if they ever get back to normal, the economic gravity will set back in and people will kind of start manufacturing most stuff or most stuff will still come out of China? There are certainly some short term use case applications that you could see are sort of one offs. So one of sort of the hurdles in adopting 3D printing is that you have to actually rethink at the design level. You don't just want to say, oh, I have this part, I already have the the specs and everything laid out for it, and now I'm going to try a new manufacturing method. You actually want to start and say, like, holistically look, okay, maybe I have these 10 pieces, how could I actually design and produce them better? There's part of that sort of just push that a manufacturer might need to sort of get into the technology. And then I think, again, on sort of the behavior side, you could see um, companies initially testing and then realizing, oh, wait, this actually allows me to bring parts closer to home and, and can shorten my manufacturing footprint. And, you know, now I'm sort of scarred by these supply disruptions. I don't want this to happen again. So you could see, um, certainly in some cases, companies will want to bring manufacturing back from China. I don't think that'll happen in every case, but you could certainly see some companies sort of having a preference for that going forward. Okay, now what's the climate like now out there among entrepreneurs, among investors? Are investors looking for opportunities in these sorts of areas or is everyone sort of sitting on their hands? What's actually happening on the ground? Well, from our perspective, we're actually seeing some inflows into our funds. Leading up to the coronavirus crisis, a number of our names had sort of had a run, uh, Tesla being one of them. So we think that some investors were sort of actually waiting for a pullback in the market to invest in sort of these high growth areas. So I think that's one positive that we're seeing. What's your perspective, Ludwig? This is the third crisis you've seen in Silicon Valley, I believe, in your career. So how does it look compared with the others? Even before Corona hit, there was kind of somewhat of a slowdown in the Valley. Kind of the Uber IPO wasn't great. We were kind of didn't even try to go public. So kind of the, the period of the unicorns of the unicorn boom was somewhat coming to an end. And what the corona crisis has done is speed up that process quite significantly to a point where people are now talking in the valley, uh, this is going to be worse than after the dot-com bubble. I remember in the early 2000s when things kind of in the valley were really dire and people thought kind of this is going to be the nuclear winter or even thought this is the end of the valley as we know it. And I think that is true. It's going to be really tough for many, many startups. A capitalist pretty hard to come by these days. Many of these companies have spent too much money, don't have a long runway. So we'll see what happens. But I think it's going to be rather dire for, for many of them. At the same time, people in the Valley are kind of notoriously optimistic. Uh, and they're already thinking about w- what are the opportunities, uh, which companies can we invest in. And you see deals in areas where people think that they will benefit from the crisis. And in the end, the Valley will recover. The innovation ecosystem here is, is not being destroyed by Corona, at least so far. It doesn't seem like that. And so, yes, there will be two or three years of of slowdown. Lots of companies will go belly up, but there will be a new wave. 
Exactly. So you'll see sort of the the leading innovators will come out of this victorious, but some of the companies that were sort of already struggling are only going to have a tougher time now that they're sort of faced with this other financial hardship. I've heard, for example, that SARS helped to drive the adoption of e-commerce in Asia when that outbreak happened, that previous coronavirus, and that this was one of the factors that helped Alibaba. So is there sort of a sense in which we have seen particular behaviours breaking out in crises and also recessions? I mean, people are, are they more willing to try different things in recessions? Is this a time when people are more open to change? Yeah, well, I think e-commerce, as you mentioned, is, is a really great example. And that's sort of an obvious one. But we've been seeing in our sort of own market forecast, we've, we've always thought that, you know, e-commerce globally right now is only 15% of retail, which is still relatively low. So we think that could go much, much higher in the next 10 years. And you could see that adoption curve certainly being pulled forward by a crisis like this, as we saw in the SARS epidemic, as you mentioned. And I think people will start ordering online and sort of realize, oh, this is actually easier than what I was doing before. And it saves me money and time. On e-commerce, I also think we have to look at the other side of the equation is that a lot of kind of marginal retailers will, will go away. So certain things you may not be able to get on the high street or in stores. And so that's going to push kind of the move into to e-commerce even further. So I think it basically has an impact on both sides. Tasha, I wanted to ask you one last thing, because I know one of the areas you cover is autonomous vehicles. On the one hand, you could imagine that not having a driver in the car would make them more attractive. You can't catch something from not having a driver. On the other hand, if they're shared vehicles, this makes them less attractive. Um, Net net, how does this affect the prospects, you think, for autonomous vehicles? Okay, so our top line view on autonomous driving is that we think it'll first commercialize in the form of autonomous taxis, and they'll be extremely cheap. So we think they could price at just 25 cents per mile to consumers. That's less than half of what you pay to drive your personal car, and it's roughly a tenth of the cost of a taxi. So those economics are what we always thought would drive adoption, but there was a lot of talk and and survey work that I've seen over the sentiment and sort of how comfortable people were with automation and having a computer drive them around. So I think you could see certainly a, a sentiment shift, as you mentioned, where people are sort of more comfortable with this than they were before. We actually never thought that the majority of these rides would be shared because they'll be so cheap. Things like Uber Pool could now save you a couple of dollars. But when you're talking about saving cents, you're probably not going to to want to share the car with someone else. And then I think in the shorter term, you know, right now there's a big pause on ride hailing as sort of we're getting all these like isolation orders and social distancing measures. But coming out of this, you could certainly see something like short haul flights could be disrupted by this because I as a consumer no longer want to take that mass transportation option. So maybe I take my personal car in the short term. We've thought that autonomous technology actually could be competitive with mass transit. This could sort of help prove, I think, that use case, maybe even sort of ahead of when the technology is ready. So this crisis could be accelerating us into the future in more ways than one then. Tasha Keeney and Ludwig Ziegler, thank you both very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Next, as we've just been discussing, the coronavirus outbreak and the economic crisis it has caused are forcing companies to rethink how they use technology. Millions of people around the world have lost their jobs as businesses have shut down. As companies start to recover, might they be more inclined to hire machines than people? What is the link between automation and recessions? The connection is that you get more automation in recessions. This is Mark Miro from the Brookings Institution, a think tank in America, and he's been looking at how recessions affect the way technology is adopted. I think some people think that maybe somehow because 
there would be a surplus of human work and people to do it, that perhaps automation would decline as people became cheaper. It actually turns out that the bottom line of companies collapses much faster than the cost of human labor does. So in effect, in a crisis, the cost of humans goes up and companies are motivated to reorganize their work using often more automation. And we've seen this in the last few recessions, and we think that we will see more this time. Okay, and to be clear, are we just talking about jobs in America here, or is this a broader phenomenon? We have very quantitative work indicating what has happened in the last three recessions in the United States. However, I think this isn't just a single nation kind of hot take. This gets to very structural matters of how uh, the economy works and the trade-off between labor and costs. And we think it's a generalizable, important trade to be thinking about through the global recession that we're in now. Okay, so if that does happen this time around, as your theories would predict, where would we expect to see the impact in which fields and which sorts of workers would be affected by this? It's going to be most prevalent in fields where first, There is a lot of routine labor, and I think it will be accentuated where the factors uh, and queasiness with social contact are most important. You know, if you think about fast food restaurants, you have ready-to-go kiosk ordering. In retail, you have the readiness, I think, to roll out cashierless stores such as Amazon Go is prototyping. So it's places where there's ready-to-go, cheaper technology, and these kind of pressures around cost, social distancing this time. And do you think this is a short-term effect that then eventually leads to the creation of new jobs? Or do you see this leading to widespread technological unemployment, which of course has been forecast many times before, but has not come to pass? What we don't see is widespread unemployment due to technology. We may say widespread unemployment for other reasons, obviously, in the next year or two. But what we do see and what I'm underscoring is a kind of punctuated equilibrium where there's a steady spread or diffusion of automation applications, but then surges of them during bad times and greater flux reorganization in downturns. And I think that's what we're going to see in this one with perhaps more automation and AI applications having been perfected and their costs reduced during the last decade. So some people characterize this as you get a sort of build-up of interesting new technologies during booms, and then you get a surge of adoption in a bust. And then ultimately things come back, but with a higher level of productivity than before. Is that roughly what's happening? I think there's a sense that somehow automation is some kind of steady ambient background effect. We're suggesting that it's a spikier matter of surges and and that downturns are particularly intense periods for adoption, reorganization of work, and to some extent, new effective solutions as well, but also, you know, greater flux and often confusion for workers. 
the headline, you know, you get more robots doing more work in recessions or however you want to put it sounds bad. But ultimately, you're saying this is actually part of a, a repeating cycle. And in the long run, it's just stirring the pot and changing the, the nature of the jobs that are available rather than permanently reducing the number. Yeah, very much so. I think your point was good that there's an accumulation, steady accumulation of experimentation and, and technology that then be brought into the economy in these urgent periods. Well, thinking of previous examples, if you look at weaving in the Industrial Revolution, there's obviously a lot of automation. I think by the end of the 19th century, people were producing something like 50 times as much cloth per worker because they were basically overseeing machines. So the price of cloth collapsed and demand for it surged. And then the number of people working in the textile industry had actually gone up by the end of the century. So it's counterintuitive, but by cutting costs, automation can increase demand for things, which means more people end up having to be involved in making them. To date, we have seen that effect over time with ultimately fortunate additions of new work that have sort of smoothed over the dislocation that is needed along the way. And that may be what happens when you get up close to any of these adoption periods. Often a lot of the adoption occurs under the great stress of downturns or major dislocations. We'll see how it plays out here. But when you look close at an episode like we're in, there is a lot of chaos, a lot of dislocation, and probably surges of technology adoption that will, in the near term, add to the confusion, but may contribute to a new order of you know, greater efficiency. Great. Mark Murray, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Finally, we started off looking at the invention of the bicycle, and then we considered the use of automated vehicles and robot workers. And now we're going to gaze upwards into the sky. The idea of delivery drones that bring us our shopping in minutes has been around for a few years, but it's never really seemed to have taken off. So could the coronavirus accelerate the adoption of this technology, given that it cuts out the need for human contact? One company that's been developing a drone delivery service is Wing, a sister company of Google within the Alphabet group. The use of the service has increased quite a bit. It's essentially an acceleration of something we're already seeing. Jonathan Bass is head of communications at Wing, and he sees this as the perfect opportunity to put its service to the test. With people sheltering in place and it's more difficult to leave their homes, they are finding a lot of value in the service. So from February to March, our deliveries doubled across our communities around the globe. From March to the first two weeks in April, they, they doubled again. So we did about a thousand deliveries across all our communities uh, in the first two weeks of April. And then the last seven days, we did a thousand deliveries. So they doubled again from the first two weeks of April to the last week. There are a lot of people around the world that work from home. I think in any given time period, there are people that may not be able to get out easily. We have a lot of elderly customers that both appreciate us right now and appreciated us before the coronavirus uh, situation started. So I, I think there's a strong demand for this. You know, over the next year or two, you'll see us expand quite a bit. So where are the drones operating exactly? You talk about communities around the world. Which countries are we talking about? So we're operating on three continents, in Finland, in East Helsinki, in Australia, in Canberra, and Logan, which is in the Brisbane area in Queensland, and then in the United States in Virginia, in southwest part of Virginia. And what do all of these locations have in common? What kind of environment are they? They're all a little different. We typically 
partner with a mix of businesses, so some large, some small. In Virginia, uh, we're partnered with Walgreens and FedEx, but also a number of local merchants, a gift store, a, a coffee shop, a cafe, and then a restaurant. In Australia, we're partnered with you know a wide range of, of local merchants, everything from a chocolate maker, um, you know, a sporting goods store to a number of local restaurants. So the services that we offer vary from community to community. But none of these communities, to be clear, are dense downtown urban residential areas. Well, it's not incredibly dense. It, it depends. So in Finland, we're in Helsinki. We're in East Helsinki. There's multifamily housing in all the communities. There is some multifamily housing, more multifamily housing in the East Helsinki area than, than some of the other locations. So they do vary a bit. Okay, because I think the perception has been that this sort of testing has been happening essentially in rural areas because of the concern that people don't want drones dropping on their heads. So that's not true anymore. Is that an outdated perception then? It is an outdated perception. So it's, it's been a progression. I joined Wing in 2018. I think we were just coming out of that phase where we had mostly been testing in rural areas. We launched our first suburban trial in Canberra, uh, which is a, a city of around 400,000, between 400,000 and 500,000 people in mid-2018. And we've gradually moved to more and more dense environments. So what kinds of products are best suited to drone delivery in general? And then what are you delivering in particular with all of these partners? We designed the technology to deliver really anything that could fit into the box. The payload is around one and a half kilos, and it varies. So we do deliver a lot of food items, especially right now. We deliver over-the-counter medications. Lately, we've been delivering more you know, pasta and, and pasta sauce. We've been delivering quite a bit of toilet paper recently you know, to those that are running out of supply. So it varies by community. And these drones don't look like the sort of multi-rotor drones that people are familiar with, have maybe seen people playing with in the park or whatever. So tell us a bit about the design, because it's quite unusual, isn't it? It is. So the aircraft is designed to fly on the wing like an airplane and then hover like a helicopter for delivery. So it flies up to, you know, 120 kilometers an hour, you know, 65, 70 miles an hour. And then to hover, it drops down to a, a height of about 23 feet and it delivers a package that's attached to a tether, so it doesn't land during delivery. It's largely made of foam. The primary components are sort of the components you'd find in a bicycle helmet, so some plastic covering and then foam. And it weighs around five kilos, 10 pounds, so about the size of a, of a household cat. Uh, so safety is, is actually one of the greatest advantages of this service. It's far safer than delivering something on the ground in a, an automobile or a truck. Obviously, there aren't delivery drivers like there would be for deliveries on wheels. But what new jobs does drone delivery create? We're delivering something that's three pounds or less. So we're more often replacing the quick trip to the store or a short meal. We don't think we'll have a significantly downward impact on delivery driver jobs. But it does create a lot of additional opportunities. I think there are businesses that, like coffee shops, you know, small businesses, cafes, who never would have considered delivery before. And this is a way that they can deliver their products. Maybe they're concerned about the quality or the freshness, and they would be comfortable delivering it in a few minutes, but maybe not over a 30 to 45 minute time window. So it can expand their business and allow them to, to hire more workers and serve more customers. It's helpful to businesses. It allows them, especially right now, but more broadly, it allows them to, to connect with customers in new ways, to deliver products very, very quickly. It doesn't need to be a disruptive technology. 
that's great and that's the opposite of what people expect when they see something being automated isn't it that it can create new jobs it's just not the ones you expect in this case it's creating jobs for baristas so would you say this is now a commercial service or is this still technically a trial and when will it go from one to the other Well, this is very much what a service would look like in the future. So while we're not charging for delivery, it's very much a commercial service in the sense that the customer selects the product they want, they're ordering it on demand. It's not really controlled in any specific way. So we've moved beyond, I think, in the last couple of years, the proof of concept stage that we were in maybe in 2016 to creating a service that really could be replicated around the world. I think that's everything. Jonathan Bass, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for your time. You can keep up to date with all the latest on the coronavirus with our daily podcast, The Intelligence. Find it on your podcast app or online at economist.com slash coronavirus. And to subscribe to The Economist, visit economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.